Our scripture today is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 19. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Please join me in a brief time of prayer. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray now that as we begin to to look into these two um, theologically pregnant verses, Lord God, that are so rich with your grace, and mercy. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would direct our attention heavenward. We pray that as we stand before your throne this morning and gaze upon your majesty, that we would hear, not from me, Lord God, but that we would hear your voice through the pages of your inerrant and authoritative word, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, speak to our hearts, to our minds, and that you would make us more like your son. And We pray this in Christ's name, amen. The current world population, if you didn't know this, is 7.9 billion, <laughs> roughly. 7.9 billion people live on the face of the planet, and of that, there are roughly 2.5 billion Christians around the world. That's a lot. 2.5 billion professing believers. At this point, we know that the gospel has reached every continent on the planet and has crossed every national border in the world. Not that every group of people has been reached with the gospel. We know that there are still some unreached people groups in the world. But nonetheless, when you look at nations, when you look at the borders of nations, there is not a nation in the world, there is not a continent in the world into which the gospel has not penetrated. Among those 2.5 billion Christians, there are roughly 37 million 37 million church buildings around the world accommodating Christian congregations. That is approximately, if you're wondering, one church building, one church congregation that is gathering for every 214 people in the world. There are literally enough churches in the world for every person on the face of the planet to attend church if they so desired. The Bible is the best-selling book in all of church history for at least as long as we've been keeping record of this, with a total sales exceeding 5 billion copies the Bible has sold. And every year, it continues to be a number one bestseller. Every year, there are more Bibles 
bought and sold than any other book in the world, with over 100 million copies of the Bible sold every single year, for as long as we have been tracking those statistics. At this point, the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, has been translated into 532 languages and partially translated into 2,883 languages around the world. Despite all of these amazing figures, professing Christians only make up approximately 32% of the world's population. You would expect to see more. 2.5 billion Christians around the world. The gospel has gone into every continent. It has gone into every nation. There is literally one church gathering on Sunday for every 214 people on the face of the planet. The Bible is the number one best-selling book every single year. And yet Christians only make up 32% of the world's population. Why is that? Because our efforts, our logical and persuasive arguments is not what saves people. That's not how people get saved. People's intelligence or their ability to comprehend abstract ideas is also not what saves people. It's not the intelligent ones that get saved. It's not the ones who can follow logical arguments that can get saved. Now, this is not to say that we should not make any effort to reach the loss with the gospel. We absolutely should. Despite the fact that it's not our efforts, it saves people. Despite the fact that it has nothing to do with our persuasive arguments or our apologetics, it saves people, we still need to make every possible effort to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just want to make sure that I'm not being misunderstood. For two reasons. Number one, because God commands it, right? The Great Commission, God commands, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So even if God were to say to us, I want you to share the gospel with every person you come across as you walk down the street, but understand not a single person is going to get saved that you share the gospel with, what should be our response to that? Obedience. I'll do it, regardless of what the outcome is. But the second reason we ought to make every effort is the fulfillment of the second great commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Because we know that if people are going to get saved... Romans chapter 10, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. People need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, fully understanding that, fully understanding that if and when people do get saved, we must ever keep in mind that it had nothing to do with our ability. It has nothing to do with our intelligence. It has nothing to do with their intelligence. It has nothing to do with their humility. 
If you're saved today in this room, know that God did not save you because you were just a little less prideful than everyone else around you. Because you were a little more humble than everyone else around you. Or because you were a little more intelligent than those around you who rejected the gospel and you were just capable of seeing a good thing when it came your way and they weren't. This is the point that Paul is now going to begin driving toward in this section. Because the church in Corinth is a church that is filled with a great amount of pride. They were a prideful people. Remember that the church in Corinth was comprised of Greeks and Romans. Corinth is in Greece. Greece is the great birthplace of philosophy, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, Greece. They were proud of that fact. They were above the rest of the world. And the Romans took great pride in their form of government, the Roman Republic. A new concept in that day and age, one that works well. One of the reasons we adopted it in our country. We are a republic, yes, and in some ways a democracy. They took a great deal of pride in their form of government and in their military accomplishments. The Roman army was not a force to be reckoned with in the first century world. They were greatly feared by everyone. They had perfected the art of strategy and tactics and war. They were proud of that. This is the church in Corinth. And so Paul knows that he's ever, if he is ever going to get anywhere with him, he knows that as he begins to write this letter, he knows the things that he's going to talk about. Paul was a good writer. He probably had an outline that he had already scribbled out that he was working off of. He knew the topics he was going to address. He knew the first thing that needed to be addressed was their pride. Because they were never going to listen to what Paul has to say if their pride was not crushed. They need to know, first and foremost, that their salvation, that Christianity, that the church is not about them. We need to be reminded of that, right? Your salvation ultimately is not about you. God didn't save you because you're so wonderful and amazing and he simply could not live without you. Your salvation is about God and his glory. Paul wants the church in Corinth and all of us to understand that Christianity is not about us. The church is not about us. It is all about God and his glory. Everything that God does is for his glory. And so Paul continues in verse 18, picking up really from the thought in verse 17. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So by beginning this sentence with the word for, he is, he's telling us that he is explaining what just came before. 
namely the second half of verse 17. Notice there he says he went there to preach the gospel in Corinth and not to preach the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, Paul says, look, when he presents the gospel, he does not go into all sorts of lofty arguments, lofty presentation. He doesn't strive for eloquent speeches or the demonstration of great oratory skills. He keeps it simple. He keeps the gospel simple. Paul will later be criticized for this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. There, Paul will address certain individuals within the church at Corinth who are saying, look, why do we listen to this guy, Paul, anyways? You know, in his writings, he's all bold and brash. But in person, I mean, his speech is really nothing impressive. He's just, he's a terrible speaker. Whether or not Paul was actually a terrible speaker, uh, we don't know. It may be that Paul just kept the gospel simple. He just kept his Bible teaching simple. He always put the cookies on the lowest shelf where everybody could get to them. And he was criticized for it. Because you see, the church in Corinth, these Greeks, these Romans, they enjoyed hearing wonderful oratory speeches and great skill. They were impressed by that. And then there's Paul who just keeps things really simple. And they just weren't impressed. But he keeps the gospel simple because, as he says at the end of verse 17, that if he presents the gospel with lofty, eloquent words of wisdom, then the question that it begs is, did people get saved because of the gospel or because of Paul's persuasive arguments and his persuasive speech? Paul wants to make sure that he does not rob God of any credit, of any glory. If the gospel is truly the power of God unto salvation then surely it doesn't matter how we present the gospel as long as people hear it. And so Paul says it really does not matter how the gospel is presented in verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. Foolishness to those who are Perishing. What an interesting thing to say about the gospel. Paul will later go on to say in verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. I love the King James translation there. It pleases God through the foolishness of preaching. Paul calls preaching foolishness. This is the same Paul who in 2 Timothy chapter 4 tells Timothy, I charge you, Timothy, I place you under oath to preach the word. Yet, he says, it pleases God through the foolishness of preaching to save some. Why does he call the gospel foolishness? And why does he call preaching foolishness? Because when it comes to understanding 
and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, unbelievers are faced with two insurmountable obstacles. Insurmountable obstacles. In and of themselves, unbelievers are faced with two obstacles they cannot get around. He points out the first obstacle in verses 21 and 22, which we'll talk more in depth about next week. But notice what he says there in verses 21 and 22. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. A stumbling block to Jews. The Jews simply could not wrap their mind around the idea of a crucified Messiah. That was a stumbling block to them. It made no sense to them. We've studied the Bible. We've studied the Old Testament. The Messiah is supposed to be the son of David, heir to the throne of David. We're told in the Old Testament that of his kingdom there will be no end. That's the covenant that was given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that of the Messiah's kingdom there would be no end, that his throne would be forever. Obviously, he's going to be a king. Obviously, he's going to reestablish the greatness of Israel. Obviously, he's going to throw, overthrow the enemies of Israel, the Roman Empire, what do you mean he was crucified? That doesn't make any sense. That can't be. It's a scandal to the Jewish mind. A crucified Messiah? It's a contradiction in terms. It's like hot ice cream. And foolishness to the Gentiles. A stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness to the Gentiles, the rest of the world, the Greeks and the Romans. Because they would say, let me get this straight. Your God came down out of heaven and became human. And then he was beaten and flogged and pulverized and pummeled by the Romans and was crucified. He was put on a cross, hung there to die. And that's your God? That, that's, that's the God you worship? We worship Zeus, Hermes, and Diana, and Aphrodite. You worship a God that's been crucified. That doesn't make any sense. And then to the Greeks... These philosophers, these Stoic philosophers, you're going to tell us, and then he was resurrected to life in his body? And that we're going to be resurrected someday in a glorified body and reunited with this body? Deliverance from this body is what we want, what the Greeks thought. This body is what causes all of the problems. We need to be delivered from it. That's salvation. Foolishness to the Gentiles. The gospel makes no sense. The world still struggles with this today. You mean you worship a God 
who gave his only begotten son and allowed him, stood back and allowed him, in fact, even participate in it as we talk about the cross is the wrath of God the Father being poured out on his son. Many liberals would say, well, isn't that just divine child abuse? Why would you worship a God like that? You're telling me that you worship a God who rejects the uniting of two people in marriage who love one another, are committed to one another, make each other happy, fulfill one another simply because they're of the same sex? What's wrong with that? What kind of a God would not want people to be happy? You're telling me you believe that this book is actually the true, inerrant, and authoritative word of God? Come on, it's just a book. Just pages, ink on a page. Or you actually reject the entire scientific community's belief and factual knowledge that evolution is true. And you guys are just like scientific Neanderthals if you reject evolution. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. It makes no sense that we believe what we believe. What is wrong with you people? You've been brainwashed. The other insurmountable obstacle is a spiritual one. Paul will talk about this more in detail in chapter 2, verses 11, down to 14. In that section, I mean, well into chapter 2, all the way to the end of chapter 2, Paul will continue to uh, put in check the pride of the church in Corinth and to humble themselves before the grace of God. Notice what he says in verse 11 of chapter 2. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. In other words, no one knows you better than you except for God. But no one knows you better than you know yourself is what he's saying. Your husband, your children, it doesn't matter how much time you spend with somebody. No one knows you better than you. Because you know your innermost thoughts and ideas, passions, desires. So also, no one knows the thoughts of God better than God's own spirit. Spirit of God knows God better than anyone else. To go on to say in verse 12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. We have received the Holy Spirit from God so that we might understand the things of God. Now, here's something that you need to take notice of. Notice that Paul does not say that we received the Spirit of God because we understood the things of God. In other words, we did not understand 
the things of God, primarily the gospel, first, and because of that, we received the Holy Spirit of God. He doesn't say that. He says, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. We are given the Spirit first in order to understand the things of God. And my friend, the gospel is part of what falls into that category of the things of God. Notice verse 14. The natural person, which is Paul's way of describing the unbeliever, he's contrasting the natural person with the spiritual person in verse 15. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they are foolishness to him. Understand, this is a description of our pre-conversion state. Before we got saved, we were all natural persons. And he says, the natural person does not. He doesn't say the natural person usually doesn't. He doesn't say the natural person most often doesn't. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. They are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, what Paul is telling us is that the Holy Spirit is the enigma machine that enables us to discern and understand the things of God, namely the gospel. Without the Spirit of God, nothing that God presents to us makes any sense. We cannot discern it. We cannot decipher it. Paul will later say in his next letter to this church, turn with me to 2 Corinthians. I'd like you to gaze upon these verses with your own eyes because they are important. Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter four, beginning in verse three. Paul says, "And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. That's all believers, unbelievers. That's you and I before God saved us." It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who is the image of Christ. Unbelievers in their unbelieving state are blind to the gospel. They are blind to the glory of Christ. They cannot see it. They are being blinded by the devil himself. That's what he means. In their case, the God, small g, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they will not see the gospel. 
In other words, according to Paul, if we take him at his word, presenting the gospel to an unbeliever apart from the work of the Holy Spirit is like holding up a stop sign in front of a physically blind person who is walking toward a cliff. It's not going to help, right? They're still going to walk off the cliff. Why? Because they can't see it. They can't see what you're waving in front of them. It doesn't matter how big the sign is. They're going to keep walking to their destruction. But we sit here and we look back at our own past experience and we say, well, wait a minute. At some point, I did understand the gospel. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. Unless you're a kid, maybe your parents drug you here. But for those of us who are here voluntarily, we're here because I got saved. Because someone shared the gospel with me. And it made sense. I understood it. I believed it. I embraced it. How is that possible? Feast your eyes upon verses 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is borrowing from the language of creation in Genesis chapter 1 in order to explain how we got saved. We got saved in the same way that light came upon the earth and it moved from darkness into light. Did the earth have anything to do with that? No. Did creation have anything to do with that? No. God simply spoke and said, let there be Light. There was light. At one moment, we were lost in our sin, in darkness, and blind to all of the things of God, including the gospel, and none of it made any sense to us. And then at some point in God's divine, perfect, providential timing, Someone presented the gospel to you, maybe for the first time, maybe for the eighth or tenth time. But in one of those moments, as they presented the gospel to you, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, said, let there be light. Remove the blinders that they might see and understand and embrace the gospel and the glory of my son. And suddenly it all made sense. My friends, God did that. You contributed nothing to your salvation. God does that. Salvation is a sovereign, monergistic, unilateral work of God alone. And for that reason, God gets all the glory. We get none. We get none. This is the point that Paul is making back in 1 Corinthians 1.18. Look back at 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. That's why Paul will say in 1 Corinthians or Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God to save people is not found in us. And it's not found in other people and their ability to understand the gospel or their humility or their lack of pride or anything in them because they're blind to it. It's foolishness to them. The natural mind cannot understand the things of God. Thus, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And that's great news because it means that no one in this world is beyond the saving grace of God. There's hope in that. We cannot look at anybody and say that person is beyond hope. There's no way God can reach that person. God can reach anyone he chooses to reach. No one is beyond the saving grace of God. The gospel power, as I said, is not in our ability to persuade people or in people's ability to understand the things of God, but rather is in God's sovereign grace and mercy. For that reason, as I've said, God gets all the glory and we get none. Here's something else that needs to be noted from verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Being saved. Salvation is a process. Justification is definitive. Regeneration is definitive. But salvation is a process. That's why the Bible talks about salvation all over the New Testament in both the past, present, and future tense. Here we have the present tense. We are being saved. We're in the process of being saved. Well, that's funny. I thought I was saved. I thought I had been saved. Well, it's true according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Right there we see the past tense. For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you have been saved. Past tense. You are saved. It's something that's happened. But then you read places like Romans 5, 9. And Paul says this, Since therefore we have now been justified. Justification is almost always past tense. There's one exception. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved, future tense, by him from the wrath of God, that is the wrath of God to come, the future day of judgment. We will be saved because of our faith in Christ. Because you see, salvation is not complete until the day we enter into the presence of God and are completely free of sin. In fact, if you want to be really technical, salvation is not complete until Christ returns and 
um, renews all of creation and reunites us with our resurrected body because God's plan has always been not just to save our spirits, not just to save our souls, but to restore and save all of creation. Because our physical bodies is just as much a part of being made in the image of God as our spirits. Body and spirit, image of God. We're not fully saved until the resurrection. Then we are fully, then our salvation is completely, utterly done. But until that day, we are being saved, and we will be saved, and we have been saved. But notice the reason that Paul gives as to why salvation must be this way. In our text, he cites Isaiah 29, 14, in verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, he is quoting verbatim from the Septuagint. So if you go back and look at the Old Testament, you're going to notice the wording's a little different. He's not quoting from the Hebrew. He is quoting from the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Bible. But it's interesting that this verse comes to Paul's mind. As Paul talks about salvation and the gospel and how it is that God saves and why the gospel doesn't make sense to people, Paul reflects back on Isaiah 29. Why? Well, here's the context of Isaiah 29. God, in Isaiah 29, is condemning the nation of Israel, and he is telling them that judgment is about to come upon them. I am going to bring a foreign power. Judgment is going to come upon you, and he tells them that when it does, when that judgment comes, and when God does save a remnant, out of Israel. He's not going to destroy everybody. When God does save a remnant out of Israel, he tells them that the wisdom in Isaiah 29, the wisdom of their so-called prophets, the wisdom of their wise men and the discernment of their discerning men will be destroyed because it won't make any sense to them when it happens. They'll say to themselves, this is not how we thought God was going to work in the nation of Israel. This is not how we thought God was going to deliver us from the judgment to come. They will be confounded because they will not be delivered in a way that they thought they would be delivered. This is the effect that the gospel has on the unbelieving world. This is the effect that the gospel that Christ presented had on the the wise and the so-called prophets and discerning of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. It made no sense to them. How are you the Messiah from Nazareth, the son of a carpenter? Especially after he was crucified. It made no sense. It reminds me of that wonderful Christmas song that comes around every year where the chorus says, this is such a strange way to save the world. In the mind of the unbelieving world, it really is. This is such a bizarre way to save the world. It's the paradox of God. God, the humble king. 
the humble king. The lamb who is also the shepherd of his church. The crucified savior. How do you save someone if you've been crucified? The rejected Messiah. It's the paradox of God. In the end, in the end, salvation does not go to the wise or to the strong or to the talented. Salvation goes to those upon whom God bestows his saving, sovereign grace. And it is that truth that should compel all of us to live a life that worships and glorifies God. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for these truths from your word. We thank you for your amazing grace and love and mercy for saving us, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, not because we were looking for it, but simply because you are rich in mercy and love and grace, and we are so thankful, and we praise you and we worship you. We pray, Lord God, that this truth will compel us to live a life that brings you great glory and honor and praise in light of all that you have done for us, the least we can do is live for you. We pray this in Christ's name.